You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Welcome back, everyone. Um, I'm starting us off this week, and, you know, as we like to do as naturalists, we like to stroll through the woods quite a bit. Yes, we do. Fair, uh, yeah. Favorite pastime of our of us uh, of ours, I should say. Um, let's say we're in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. Oh, very nice. Let's say we are just just gorgeous. We're hanging out in those old growth coniferous forests, just having mm-hmm. a great time, getting like in one with your inner like magical human or inner witch, inner wizard. Okay. okay. Are you going to talk I mean, about that's what I do the Sasquatch in like or September? <laughs> this is taking a turn. I mean, no I am not. But you're surrounded by all of these old growth pines uh and you spot this weird looking thing on the floor. Okay? Uh what you spot is Hydnellum pecky. Okay. Um, Pecky is what I'm seeing. Yeah. Oh, of course. You don't, of course, right? Uh, you don't know what you're looking at quite exactly, but it reminds you very viscerally of a molar, like the tooth. A, a molar tooth. Oh, okay. 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 Mo- right, it molar, looks like a yeah, tooth. Molar tooth. Like it looks like a like, tooth. Okay. Do you mean like size wise as well, or just shape wise? Shape wise. Shape size wise, it's like an average size. It's not a large mushroom, it's not a large fungus, but it's like a oh, it's a fungus, it's like an average size fungus. Yes, it's a fungus. But in the grooves of this uh fungus, of this tooth looking thing, okay, uh, there's red ooze, bloody tooth in bubbles. Good oral (laughs) hygiene is important. You should be brushing (laughs) if you find at any moment that blood is coming out of your actual tooth. Something has gone very wrong. Yep. Uh, yeah. Um, but this gives this fungus its common name, uh, bleeding tooth fungus, also known as devil's tooth. I also awesome. saw strawberries and cream fungus as oh. an option, no, which not, is a nicer, no but not, not quite what uh, most people see. Um, so it's got this beige to pinkish cap that's really irregular in shape and has all of these grooves on the top of it with spots mm-hmm. that are like um that spots that are filled with these this bubble of red l- blood looking liquid. Whoa. Um and then you uh. go underneath the yeah. <laughs> you go underneath the cap and underneath instead of uh so the hymenium uh, which is where the spores are produced, where oftentimes when you're identifying a fungus, you're looking for like gills or pores. Okay, sure. Yes. This has teeth-like um, oh. structure there. <laughs> like pointy teeth-like teeth-like structure there. 
uh, rather than gills or pores. Weird. And are those bleeding as well? They are not. The oh well, that we have that going for us. Okay. Thing is mostly to the top of the fungus. Okay, so I, that I did look up some yeah. pictures of these just now, and the uh, the the glistening red vesicles, if you want to call it that, uh-huh. uh, are fairly <laughs> horrifying. I can't say that it uh-huh. looks that much like a tooth to me. It doesn't really remind me of a molar. There. But, but it does, does it look, look like, like it's bleeding. Peaches and cream? No. Okay. It yeah. It it looks like something. Or that's like, was it peaches or was it strawberries and strawberries. cream? Strawberries. I'm sorry. It was strawberries. I got, pe- and cream, I got yeah. peaches on the brain. Apparently, I'm sorry. It looks like it's got a horrible disease. Maybe yes. Ebola. Yeah. Fair. <laughs> oh. Oh. Yee. Um, that being said, um, this is a really wicked cool fungus. How does it um, taste, Rachel? Oh, we'll get to it. <laughs> oh. Um, okay. <laughs> oh, will we? All right. Interested. <laughs> we will. Uh, so first of all, it spreads its hyphae, uh, which are kind of like roots, but not because it's a fungus. Yeah. Um, so primarily hyphae is where it anchors into the ground, kind of like roots. But that's most of the fungus body itself. And what we're seeing, like right. this weird cap that looks not like a tooth, but kind of like a tooth with blood, that's actually its fruiting body. So just a little background. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But so this particular fungus is really cool because it actually um, only occurs in mature old growth forests when the canopy is like completely covered. One thing that's really cool is that. Um, because it's connected with all of these like uh, jack pines and other conifers, uh, hangs out in like the duff layer of the ground. It doesn't grow right. on like dying logs or anything like that. It grows on the duff layer, and it actually is able to fix the nitrogen and phosphorus into an access- accessible form for the other plants and trees around it to use. And it actually doesn't exchange. Sure. So it has it is a mycorrhizal uh, it has a mycorrhizal relationship with the trees and plants around it, and exchanges it for sugar, um, those of uh, those amino acids because it doesn't need as much as it's fixing, but it does need that fixed carbon in order for it to be able to grow, which is pretty cool. Right. And just for the just for the non forest nerds out there, the duff layer is the the dead leaves and such that are on the forest floor. Right. Yes, all the dead needles on the floor of the forest. Um, Now, as horrifying as this looks, uh, this fungus actually is not toxic. It doesn't really produce any poisons or any such things like that. Um, But humans, surprisingly, don't eat it. Um, (laughs) Why ever not? It does not. Uh, It is so bitter. It is so bitter that we just don't eat it. Huh. Yeah. The more um, you know. But we do use it for other things though. I wasn't um, to be clear, Rachel, I was not I was not planning on eating it in the first place, so I think we're safe. You there. weren't? No. Oh, okay. I was worried that you were gonna eat it, Kirk, but I, I was gonna let it go. Uh I actually don't eat die, fungus in general, so I'm I'm good there. Fair. Um, that being said, humans do actually utilize this fungus, um, 
We actually use okay. it to create dyes of like brown, uh, olive huh. greens, and beige. <laughs> Not what you would expect from looking at it. Do I know how? Huh. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> uh, now, the question that was on my brain whenever I when I looked at the picture of this was, what on earth is that red liquid? <laughs> yes. What is it? So. It's like a grenadine syrup production. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe some Campari. Well, you're actually kind of close um, because it's actually what? a gutation. <laughs> what is it's a gutation? Or a form of or a form of xylem sap of the fungus. Okay. Huh. So is it sugar? Um, not really. Not as far as I could tell. Um, it actually contains, hilariously, an anticoagulant. <laughs> of course. Makes okay. you bleed. <laughs> yep. So it's actually very similar to, I think it's hep- heparin. Uh, the yeah, heparin. compound that is in there, sure. which is really cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I saw this picture uh, actually earlier today and was like, oh. Well, I have to do this today. <laughs> so <laughs> because it's October, you, are you sure you didn't want to save yeah, it? Yeah, it's because for it's next, October. Next week for our big Halloween show, you must have something. I thought about for that. it. I, I think I do something okay. that definitely has inspired nightmares for next oh, good. week. Good, great. Well, Yay. we have that to look forward to. Um, yep. <laughs> anytime. Um, so that's, uh, me. So we're going to take a quick break and when we return, it'll be Victoria. Cool. Speaking of things that make you bleed. Hey, we're back. (laughs) We're back. Uh, hi. hi. I'm a little nervous now. (laughs) Well, uh, I'm currently taking a pharmacology course and you know, it got me thinking about a topic that's been on my list for a while. I decided to do it. So in class, we've been learning recently about mm-hmm. pain relieving drugs, including um, what are called non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So gotcha. uh, that's abbreviated yeah. sometimes as NSAID. Um, yeah. You may have seen that some, abbreviation. Some of my I'm more favorites. familiar with that. Yes. So uh, the group includes ibuprofen, which a lot of people take. Um, kind of the, mm-hmm. the grandmother of the NSAID group is aspirin. And I want to talk about aspirin a little bit. Um, it seems kind of boring because it's been around for such a long time. And it was actually sure. first sold by the German drug company Bayer in approximately 1899. 1899. Yeah. That was not as recent that I was, than I was expecting. Yeah. That's even before I was born. Even before you were born. Okay, Kirk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was an incredibly important drug for the first half of the 20th century. It was basically the go-to treatment for mild to moderate pain, fever, and inflammation. And Mm -hmm. it became less popular after acetaminophen, (laughs) Tylenol, and ibuprofen were developed in the 1950s and 60s. I thought you were going to say it became less popular when heroin I became a big craze <laughs> in Victorian Europe, but 
Oh, but that's a that's you a topic to, for another time. You went a that different a direction different on that one. Okay. Yep. Kirk. <laughs> I think, in all fairness, heroin was very popular even yes. before eighteen ninety nine. Yes. So. Yes. Yeah, heroin was already okay. popular. Or opium, yes. at least. I'm not sure when heroin was synthesized. Was, that's I think it was true. It was more opium than heroin, yeah. but yeah. Um, aspirin does have some downsides. Not as many as heroin. <laughs> But um <laughs> oh well don't spotted do Victoria drugs, children. <laughs> yes. Uh one of the one of the downsides is that the same mechanism that helps it treat pain actually reduces the ability of the stomach to produce mucus, which maybe that sounds like a good thing cuz mucus is gross, but it's actually very important for protecting your stomach from your stomach acid, which is very strong oh, acid. Yeah. And if the mucus yeah. isn't there, you can get um, severe stomach pain and even bleeding ulcers. So this can be a side effect of aspirin use. Other NSAIDs too, but aspirin even more. Um, gotcha. Also, if aspirin builds up too much in your body over time, it can cause toxic effects, uh, starting with ringing in the ears and uh, going through nausea and vomiting and potentially winding up with uh, swelling of the brain. So that's bad. Oh, yeah, that's These not all. Great. Yeah, bad things. Bad, yeah, that's bad, if you take bad, aspirin like a lot over a handful. long period of time, usually. Oh, I see. So a prolonged exposure. A day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but aspirin is actually still going strong as a drug, even though it's not quite as popular as it used to be for pain. And that is because it is very useful as an anti-clotting drug. Uh, all right. Yes. So f- similar to heparin. <laughs> um. For people with heart disease, it's actually often used as a daily therapy to prevent the formation of blood clots that could lead to heart attack or stroke. Why am I talking about aspirin, though, on Strange by Nature? It is a manufactured drug, after all. (laughs) Uh, Isn't it based on things in nature? Well, Uh yes. So its history does stretch back even farther than 1899. And... just to let you know, aspirin is known chemically as acetyl salicylic acid, and it was first created by chemically transforming a related compound called salicin. And salicin was first isolated in 1828 from willow bark. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That delicious tasting willow bark. Mmm. So Blah. bitter. Oh, uh, that's awful. It's also I bit. I yeah. ate some just recently just to try just it to and try I it. did not swallow. I spit it out. Yeah, I bet you did. <laughs> well, it turns out aspirin doesn't taste good either. Yeah. Mm. True. Um, so salicin is actually, so it's a, in willow bark of different species. It's also present in poplars, which are in the same family as willow. Um, right. And it's also found in various other plants, uh, including meadowsweet, which is a, a Europe, Eurasian herb. So hmm. here's the thing. You may have heard this before. Willow bark can be used for pain relief. And if you're inclined toward certain kinds of historical fiction, this is kind of a well-known mm. bit of trivia. Like, for example, uh, Clan of the Cave Bear, which is about, you know, Neanderthals and stuff, um, features a lot of herbal uh-huh. medicine. And willow uh-huh. bark is mentioned pretty frequently. Um, I know there are like other books that I've read that have been said in the past and they've like, I know that some others have mentioned willow bark, although I doesn't, can't like remember specifically at this point. Little House in the Prairie like have willow bark as part of it? Possibly. I don't remember. Somewhere. Could well be. Anyway. So when I was first planning this, this episode, this would be where I would have talked about how there's a history of thousands of years 
of use of willow bark for pain, fever, and inflammation, going back to ancient Egypt, the Sumerians, Hippocrates, and ancient Chinese medicine. Okay. Uh, yeah, cool. and you can find sources but... all over the web, including respectable sources, saying some version of this. Um, so the idea is it was a folk remedy. It was known across the millennia, but mostly kind of ignored by the establishment until 1763, when there was this English clergyman. And um, the, the wonder drug at the time was quinine, or specifically the bark of the tree mm-hmm. that it was made from. So this idea of having a bitter bark that was good for fevers was very much in the, the time. In vogue. Yeah, and so he had discovered that willow bark was also bitter, and he thought he would make some scientific trials of it. And he wrote a letter sure. about his success to the Royal Society, which is a very big uh, scientific organization in Britain. So that part about Edward Stone, the clergyman, mm. is true, but the part about the thousands of years of semi-secret folk medicine may, yeah. may not be true. So, yeah, I found a couple articles okay. saying that these supposed ancient origins of the aspirin story may be largely myth. Now, wow. so specifically, they were talking about Hippocrates. Okay. Now, a lot of the sources you find say something like Hippocrates recommended use of willow for pains in childbirth. Well, according to these other things I was reading, it says he does mention willow once only. But apparently what he suggested is burning willow leaves to make smoke or fumigating the uterus to get rid of a miscarried pregnancy. Oh, I did not know that the phrase fumigating the uterus was going to be in today's show. (laughs) Sounds sounds very unpleasant, doesn't it? Um, Um, So that's not exactly the same thing. No, thanks. Not nope, not the same thing at all. Yeah, and you you do see a specific ancient Egyptian papyrus uh, about herbal medicine that's mentioned uh, that supposedly mentions willow bark, but I wasn't able to track down like a specific translation where that was clear. Uh, and the yeah. same goes any any I didn't find any specific references to where it was mentioned in Sumerian or ancient Chinese literature. Wow. So, so this is something that's become part of the lore that everyone's like, oh, we knew that a long time ago. Well, it's not clear. It seems like the Hippocrates okay. thing certainly is overblown. It seems like right. willow was used in some ancient sources for some stuff, but not necessarily for treating pain and fever. Like it's mentioned for treating corns and like warts on the feet, which actually salicylic acid still is used for. So that's yeah. an actual okay. use. Huh. But so it legitimately was a plant that had uses. Yeah, and and the Sumerian and ancient Chinese thing is a big question for Mark for me. And maybe maybe it was used that way then. I don't know. Um, the the sources that are available to me <laughs> are unclear. Um, but yeah, the it may be a bit of a myth, and there's that. So, but then after after this paper that Edward Stone wrote to the Royal Society. It was then used as pain medicine from mid-18th century onward until aspirin was invented. You know, there's there's been a a little bit of modern scientific research on willow bark, and it undoubtedly does show some efficacy in treating pain and fever. Um, And according to some sources I was looking at, it may be somewhat less prone to causing side effects than aspirin and other NSAIDs. 
Um, perhaps there is a combination of effects from other compounds that are in the bark besides just the salicin. Sure, sure. On the other hand, some other sources I was looking at says that willow bark tends to cause vomiting. Uh, and also, oh. as we mentioned, it tastes very... I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, it tastes very bitter. It tastes so, so bitter. You know, proceed so with caution. Uh, I recommend ibuprofen. I think that's a pretty good drug mm-hmm. unless you have... Um, Unless you have stomach problems already. Ulcers or something. Yeah. Yeah. Acetaminophen too, as long as you don't overdose on it. So, um, you know, that's, uh, that's what I found out about aspirin. It wasn't exactly the route I thought I was going to go down. I thought I was going to talk about all the ancient history and how great it was. I feel like that happens on this show. Yeah. All the time. You'll find a topic and you're like, oh, this is going to be awesome. What a cool thing. And when you actually start to dig down into the actual, like, real references for stuff you go oh that's either totally bunk or mm-hmm. you realize that, it, that something's been misinterpreted and repeated as a story again and again and again on websites and books and stuff and then you realize that when you get to the original source material that's not really what it said yeah yeah and in this case the it's original scientific source... literacy is important yes and in this case the original source material is ancient in other languages and not very available right. on the web. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Curious. Well, everybody, when uh, mm. Victoria's book comes out, uh, I'm sure she will have done all that translation and we'll have the answer for you. No doubt. <laughs> all right. Until that time, we have uh, a little break and Kirk to tell us something new. Oh, wait. We are. I'm, I'm doing I'm going. Yeah. It's you. After the break. I thought I was going to skip this week. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll make something up. Okay. We'll see how good you yeah, are awesome. on the fly. This will be amazing. Just, oh, yeah, it'll be amazing. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. Uh, I do indeed have a story for you this week. Uh, my strange tale is one of unexpected consequences. Ooh. And nature is complex. Uh, the famed naturalist Interesting. Jo- John Muir uh, has said... When we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. Uh, that is the incidentally very widely misquoted uh, quote of John Muir. Uh, there's a bunch of uh, different versions out there, but this is the original uh, from his 1911 book, My First Summer in the Sierra. And so uh, my example of this complexity this week comes from not too far away from the Sierra Mountains, actually. Uh, My story plays out uh, still in California, but we're going to go a bit uh, toward the coast and down uh, just south of San Francisco, actually just south of San Jose, to Big Basin Redwood State Forest. I've been there. And this park is home. You've been there? Awesome. When when were you there? I think it was 2008. Very beautiful. Okay, cool. Uh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to why it, at the end of my story, why it may look different now than it did when you were there. But um, uh, oh, Big Basin okay. Redwood State Park is home to towering redwoods. Uh, it's a really popular spot to go camping. Uh, and you may have noted the word redwood in the name of the park. Uh, this park is home to coastal redwoods, which are not to be confused with the giant sequoia redwoods that can be found further inland. Uh, there is some debate, I guess, over which is bigger the giant sequoia or the coastal sequoia like they keep on finding like a bigger around one on, and then a taller of the other and there's kind of an ongoing debate but they're comparable in size uh they're both massive they can be like 50 feet in circumference 
Um, coastal redwoods. Insane. Can, yeah. <laughs> coastal redwoods can be about 1,800 years old. And as an aside, the giant sequoia can get to over 3,000 years old that we know of. So that one's definitely winning the, uh, the age game. But uh, Big Basin <laughs> Redwood State Park is home to the largest continuous stand of ancient coastal redwoods south of San Francisco. Okay, a lot of qualifiers there, but oh, cool! There's a lot of qualifiers there. <laughs> <I> <laughs> there's a lot. Go. There's a lot of redwood trees there, basically. So, uh, as you can imagine, a redwood forest is home to many creatures, but there's one uh, that really surprised me when I learned that it lived there. And apparently, these redwoods are home to the marbled muriolet. What is that? Because if you know anything huh? about the marbled muriolet, I'm assuming it's a bird. No. Uh huh. That's that's my uh, that's the only thing that, I know. That, that's my guess. You said words, Kirk. It's a seabird. Mm-hmm. Oh. What? Yeah, it what's lives it, in what, the ocean. What's it doing in the mountains? Well, I had never genuinely given it any thought as to like where they nest, but apparently they nest in the branches of coastal redwoods. Oh. Okay. So that's where they nest. That's pretty far inland. Now, no. maybe why you've never heard of a marble... No, this is... No, this, this is, is right actually on the coast. not very far inland. This is on the coast? Okay. Yeah, cool. so they're coastal Again, redwoods. I've never so, been there. Right, so like the Sierra Mountains are going to be over on like, the eastern side of, of California. This is right on the, on mm-hmm. the coast. Um, so the, okay. so it's, it makes sense that they would be able to find these trees. Um, but you've maybe never heard of marble murulets because there's less than 260,000 left in the world, and they are considered an endangered species. So, okay. Incidentally, for a long time, uh, it was actually a mystery where they nested at all. We didn't actually have confirmation mm-hmm. of the fact that they nested high up in trees until 1974 when it was verified by That's a tree climber. That's pretty recent. <laughs> we knew there was marble murrelets in the world. We knew that more of them were born each year, but no one had any idea where they went to nest. Uh, pretty cool. It's actually the huh. last North American uh, species to have its nest described. So that is pretty cool. That's so if you're wondering cool. what they look like, they're uh, mm. they're type of like auklet, so they're kind of a um, little bit like puffin slash penguin like kind of bird that just floats in the water surface okay. of the water. Okay. Okay. Um, so now that is pretty strange, right? That these birds nest in these trees. Yeah, and I don't nest, pick from a uh, tree. No, you don't. And and they're found in nests. Um, all the way to the Pacific Northwest, too, where there's appropriate forest. Kind of tying into your story, uh, Rachel. Mm-hmm. Now, that in and of itself is pretty strange, but that's not totally what my story is about. It's not actually about marble murrelets. I want you to imagine that you're camping at the park, and you don't see any marble murrelets, even though you're camped out in the redwoods. No. Um, let's say that they're not even nesting while you're there. You're there in an off-season when they're not nesting. Uh, and okay. They've, they've long ago left the nest. And what you do see, though, is a Stellar's Jay. And okay. I've heard of that one. Stellar's Jay is like a... Me too. A black and blue Jay. It's very beautiful. Uh, they are really brilliant. And I don't just mean their color. Like, they are very intelligent birds as well. Now, in our mm. neck of the woods, where Victoria and I are, uh, we have blue jays. Uh, up in northern Minnesota. You got Minnesota. blue jays up here too. Yeah, there's blue jays up in northern Minnesota. I was going to say, Rachel, you guys also have gray jays or what yeah, they now call Canada jays, which I can't quite get over that name change. But anyone who's camped in areas that have jays 
has probably had one of them come down, maybe land right on your picnic table and essentially like beg or ask you for food. Right. Mm-hmm. If you had this experience, mm-hmm. sometimes they call, yeah. I know gray jays are sometimes called camp robbers up in the boundary waters. They'll just come and take all your food from <laughs> you. Uh, they're jays in general are pretty shameless uh, and they love getting handouts. So imagine you're sitting at that table and the bird is all cute and you think, well, this is kind of fun. I'm on vacation here and there's this really pretty bird sitting here. What's the harm if I give the bird a little tortilla chip no. or, or a peanut no. or whatever? No. I know, don't feed no. wildlife. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like we, we put bird feeders out, right? Mm-hmm. Some people are probably thinking, what's the difference between me maybe even just throwing some crumbs on the ground and feeding this bird versus having a bird feeder up? Like, what's the big deal, right? I'm getting a cool experience with wildlife. Mm-hmm. I, have a, I have a cool memory to bring home from my time in the woods. Now, here is, uh... here's the weird part. If you do this in Big Basin Redwood State Park and some other parts of the world, you may have just killed a marbled murulet. Oh, no. Wait, what? Yeah, this is weird. This is really weird. So thinking back what? to the, the John Muir quote, you know, everything really is connected and actions have consequences. So researchers Elena West of the University of Minnesota uh, and... Uh, yeah. Uh, Institute for Bird Population, Southwest Avian Ecologist Harry Jones, uh, they were studying stellar jays in this park, and their research turned up some really surprising results. So turns out that feeding jays human food can lead to the death of marbled murulets, or more specifically, actually lead to them never being born. It's probably a more accurate way to put it. Uh, this is pretty wild, so okay. follow, follow me down this rabbit hole okay. here. Um, what the, re- yeah, what the researchers were able to show both by radio tagging jays and by taking samples of tail feathers from ones they caught is that there are essentially two populations of jays in the park. And some jays feed mostly high up in the trees, uh, while a different group feeds mostly on the ground. And the ones that feed near the ground are subsisting not entirely, but mostly from like handouts from campers and by cleaning up scraps and crumbs after campers have left. And because these two groups primarily utilize distinct food sources from each other, this has allowed the park to support a much larger population of jays than would normally be possible. It essentially has like, I want to say double, but I don't know if it actually was like scientifically exactly double, but you know, you had like these two different populations where in the wild, you'd really only have one. Does that make sense? Yes. Right. Yeah. Now, jays will eat marbled murulate eggs when they find them. There's not enough eggs like for the birds to depend on them. It's like, this is our food source. But jays are opportunistic, and they're going to eat kind of whatever they find. If they come upon a murulet nest, they're going to eat the egg. And this is a huge problem, as marble murulets only lay one egg per year. So Ooh. if a jay finds that oh. nest, that's it for that whole breeding pair for the whole year. They're just done. Uh, so with uh, you know essentially two population of jays in the park, there's like double the impact on the murrelet eggs being eaten, which ends up having a huge impact on their population. So even though it seems really nuts, like when a human at a campground gives a nut, let's say, to a jay, they are physically contributing <laughs> to the death of marble murrelets, even when the murrelets aren't even there, right? Because they're supporting this larger population, mm-hmm. even in an off season, which will then eventually impact how many jays are there when the murrelets come back and nest. Wow, it's just that's it's crazy. It's completely bonkers. Uh, really fascinating research that was done on this. Um, it seems like, you know, yeah. Muir's quote 
that when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe really does apply here. Something as simple as leaving cracker crumbs behind in a campsite really can affect populations of animals that don't even eat the crumbs, right? Yeah. And aren't even, aren't even yeah. in the park when the crumbs were left behind. And so it's this long-term thinking. It just sort of blows my mind. It's very cool. Now, in part because of this research, things are changing in the park. Uh, and I, it's what reason I asked Victoria when you were there is in 2020, they had a huge wildfire that came mm -hmm. through uh, the park as part of some of the big wildfires that were going on yeah. in California. It burned 97% of the park. Whoa. That's pretty yeah. big impact. Now, the redwoods uh, are um, resistant to fire, um, mm -hmm. so they, they are okay, um, but it did wipe out um, all the infrastructure and everything in the park. And so um, knowing the yeah. relationship between campers and the birds, um, they have plans that when they're going to rebuild the campground, because they're slowly opening different parts of the park, they're actually going to relocate the campground so it is no longer in the redwoods where the murrelets are nesting because they now know that this is going to um, affect an endangered species. So yeah. they're also going to do additional work to cool. educate the public about why they shouldn't be feeding wildlife in the park. So that's what I have for you today. This bizarre, mm. like relationship between humans and one species affecting another species that may not even be there at that time. Uh, information this week I got from the California State Parks and uh, the Institute for Bird Population, uh, Wikipedia, and the journal Ecosphere. Oh, cool. Fascinating. Cool, Kirk. Excellent. Hey. Well, thanks for tuning in, everybody. You know what? Next week is our Halloween show. Ooh. Very yeah. excited. Ooh. Oh, the, the most wonderful time of the year. It's like that song, right? The most wonderful time of the year. No. That's about Halloween, right? Yes. It should Definitely. be. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you for agreeing <laughs> with me. I'll see everybody next week. Have a great uh, okay. have a Bye, great everybody. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange. <laughs>